of uh, John, the Gospel of John, and that's where we're going to be this morning. Last week's sermon title was Light. This week's sermon title is uh, coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, Light and Life. Um, next week will be something light, life, and one other item to be announced next week. So I encourage you guys to uh, be here for that. Um, we're in John chapter one, and we're dealing with um, we're dealing with some some pretty deep and amazing concepts when you're dealing with uh, the birth of Jesus. And every Christmas season, every time we gather in this year, there's always a challenge of. I mean, I say this every time. There's always a challenge of trying to bring a fresh and new word among us amidst a story that is so well known by so many people. And I think that John when he was putting pen to paper, was also in the same quandary. John clearly had read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He knew the Gospels. He understood the story. Not only had he lived with Jesus and the other guys, he also understood the story and the narrative. But John had to bring some information out to us that he felt needed to be delivered as sort of a final discussion point, a final note. The other thing you need to look at when you start studying Scripture, and, and I've said this before, you know, there's three areas that all Scripture can, can be sort of um, uh, addressed at the same time. There's always a historical significance, there's usually a spiritual significance, and there's always a practical significance. And so I think any time that we study Scripture, we should look for all three of those areas. In the historical setting, we need to recognize the fact that the gospel writers had a, just had a, an inordinate amount of material to choose from. John himself said that if all the words of, of all the deeds of everything Jesus had done had been written in words, and it would fill up all the books in the whole world. Now, we realize that John was probably being a little bit, uh, using a little bit of hyperbole there. Um, I, I mean, people could have a lot of words, and, and they could probably fill the three years of ministry of, of Jesus' ministry up pretty succinctly if they really chose to. John wasn't trying to make an absolute statement there. He was just trying to inform us that there was a wealth of information that the gospel writers had to draw from. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the desire to, to address the things that they felt were necessary in and around the ministries they were dealing with, um, led them to write what they did. John didn't come up with uh, uh, the, the beginning of, of, of his gospel um, just willy-nilly. He had a purpose behind it. The purpose was to deliver a message to the people that needed to read it about the divinity and the humanness and the humanity of Jesus and how it coexisted simultaneously. He wanted the people to know that Jesus was God, which meant he was God long before creation ever began. He was God while he was a child. He was a God while he was a young man, a teenager even. He was God while he was in his 30s. He was God up to the moment he stepped onto the cross. He was God throughout that entire event. He was God afterwards. And he demonstrated his power by raising him three days after he was in the grave. He was God throughout the entire moment. But as he walked and lived and breathed, he was also a man. And he wanted that information put forth. And so he wrote this gospel. Now, Theologians love to parse things out. It seems like it's their job. They can't just take the whole Bible as it is and just read through it. I, I miss my dear sister Marge. She's so particular about just read it the way it is. We don't have to read into it. We don't have to add things to it. Just read the word. It explains itself. And I couldn't agree more. 
Scripture is very good at self-defining. And so if you, want, if you have questions in one area, you can always look in another area to find clarity. And John um, uh, wants to give us something. Now, theologians, for some reason or another, they like to believe that um, the beginning of John, John 1, chapter 1, the most of chapter 1, is actually what we call the prelude um, to the book, the prologue, if you will, the beginning. And some theologians have actually speculated that John wrote the gospel... And then after he was done writing it, he went back and, and added a prologue and then added an epilogue, which means you have a, something in the beginning and something in the end. I don't know if John did that or not. It doesn't take away from Scripture to say he did. It doesn't take away to say he didn't. Because um, the one thing I'll tell you is, as somebody who likes to write myself, there is no such thing as good writing. There is only good editing. And that's true. John probably did go back through and read his work once or twice before he finally said, it's done, send it to the printer. If he didn't, he, would have, he might have been completely inspired then in that case, um, in the sense that um, he wasn't actually writing it from his own brain. And he did. He, the Holy Spirit was giving him this knowledge, but there was something he was trying to write. So whether this prologue was written before it was completed or afterwards doesn't really matter. The fact that it's here is here because God wanted to be here. He wanted us to know that the Word of God is contained in this first chapter where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. But we talked about that last week. This week I want to deal with verse 6. Verse 6 begins with what looks to be like a parenthesis, an aside. It's almost so John is going through this very poetic, eloquent elocution of, of bringing forth the idea that Jesus was the light of the world and he was here and he was the word. And also, so then all of a sudden he throws this aside in for three verses. And he says, And there came a man named John, or sent by God, his name was John. Um, and he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. In this Christ Christmas season, there are always things that compete for our attention. Growing up, it was one of the challenges in our household um, about uh, certain iconic representations of the Christmas season. I'm not going to, I know we got young people here and I don't want to destroy illusions, um, but there's always the discussion about fat people in red outfits. And I think that's as probably as, as best I can put it without in, injuring anybody's uh, um, uh, holiday. I don't want to do that. But the idea is there are things that compete against it. And we know that the reason for this season has nothing to do with red outfits or fat people that ride around in sleighs. It has to do with the birth of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And oftentimes these competing ideas come into cultures. And it was no different for John. John was, was in a culture that was plagued with beginning levels of heresy within the church. And one of the heresies that was beginning in the church was this movement of Gnosticism, the idea that, that this wisdom movement, this secret knowledge idea was coming forth. And they were trying to say silly things like Jesus was never actually alive, that he was a spirit, that he just sort of floated through and, and didn't actually touch anything. And, and it was all predicated on this idea that, that flesh is evil, that it's sinful, and that, that God could not inhabit sinful flesh. Therefore, he must have been just a, a spirit floating through. And John's like, no, we saw him. We talked to him. We ate with him. We know he was real. Peter said the same thing in his gospels or in his, uh, in his epistles. And so there was something to be said about that. There was also this other competing idea that John the Baptist was the Messiah and that Jesus was actually a disciple of John's and that Jesus' disciples were just better with a pen than John's disciples. 
And so they got the word out more, and so there was a competition thing going on. And But John, in, the, in, in AD 90, wanted to clearly mention who John the Baptist was and who Jesus was. John the Baptist was the voice that went ahead. Jesus was the one he was talking about. And so there has to be that clear distinction. So when John was writing the gospel, it was only natural that he put in here in the first few, first little, um, first few words who John was. There came a man sent from God. His name was John. There came a man. You know, these are powerful words. There's actually, in Greek, there's only two words. It's agneto um, apostismo. Basically, it means um, there came a man who was sent by God. The, the word apostismo is where we get apostle from, and uh, the word uh, came is agneto. And so these two words put together give us the idea that there was this individual that was sent by God for a mission. He had a purpose. His mission was to be a witness where every time you see a witness in Scripture, that word is typically martyr. He was called and to be a martyr, a witness for the light, to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. And it was very clear, John said he was not the light, but the light he came to testify, but he came to testify about that light, which is obviously Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about the true light. We know that this true light is Jesus Christ. And it talks about the word in verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the uh, the only begotten son um, from the father, full of grace and truth. And so then it shifts a little bit back to John again. And it said, John testified about him. He was a witness about him. He cried out saying, This was he whom I said, who comes after me as a higher rank than I, for he existed before me, he says in verse 15. For he is the fullness we have, for, uh, for, sorry, for of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. You know, I had to stop there for a minute. Anytime you see a repetition of words in the newer Old Testament, you really need to ask why. Because the Greek and Hebrew were very similar in this. They didn't have punctuation. And oftentimes when they repeated words, they wanted to uh, bring about a, a more clearer understanding. This particular one in, in Greek is, uh, the word grace is charis. And when it says grace upon grace, it actually in Greek it says uh, charis anti-charis. Almost like grace against grace. But when you, when you write it in that phrase, it means grace upon grace. So to give you a word picture of this, I think I've used this in the past. Think of an ice cream cone. Think of a really nice, big waffle ice cream cone. I haven't eaten today. I don't know if that doesn't play into this. But think of an ice cream cone. You know, back in Jacksonville, when I was, uh, we were just getting out of high school, there was this new shop being opened up called Cold Stone Creamery. And they would sing to you while they made your ice cream more flavorful. That's about the only thing I remember out of it. But they would scrape it around on this, uh, this marble slab, and they would scrape it up, and they'd put this glob in there. And then if you wanted more, they'd put a second glob on it. And if you wanted even more, you could actually get three big balls of ice cream in a nice big waffle cone. I think three is all I've ever done. I don't know if anybody ever got more than three. I don't know if you could contain. I don't know if you could eat more than three without your brain freezing. But imagine, if you will, an ice cream cone, a nice big waffle cone with at least three giant balls of your favorite ice cream flavor, right? Are you guys with me so far? I said ice cream. Alaska loves ice cream. So I figure you guys are right there. This is, what, this is the, the word picture, if you will, in the Greek that we have with grace upon grace. It's almost though one scoop of grace wasn't enough. 
But he needed to add another scoop of grace. And then when Jesus was looking at it, he's like, two scoops of grace? Who only eats two scoops of grace? Let's put a third one on there. So you get the giant ice cream ball of grace in a giant cone given to us. It's that overabundance of grace, if you will. It's this beautiful multi-layer of grace that never stops. It's this perpetual grace that continually is delivered through us because of the fullness that he came with this, he is the light of the world. And this is what John had to testify about. I mean, if I was John and I had that image to testify, if I was coming to individuals and I had, of course, I don't know if there's no indication that John had ice cream, but if he did, I'm sure he would use this imagery. We oftentimes give an image of John as being this very severe and abrupt individual. I don't know what John was like. We know other than what scripture tells us. But John had a powerful message. He had a testimony that he was coming to the Jews. He was coming to them telling them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see that in verse 19. It says, this is the testimony of John. That when the Jews sent uh, to him the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did, not, um, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He says, I am the one that comes before. I am like that voice of Elijah that's coming out of the woods. He says, I'm not Elijah, because they ask him, what then, are you Elijah? And he goes, no, I'm not Elijah. And they said, are you that prophet that Moses talked about? He goes, no, I'm not him. And they said, who are you? Give us an answer. So we know what he says, and he quotes out of um, uh, Isaiah chapter 40. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And now, when they, now they had been sent by the Pharisees, and they asked him and said, why are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, he says, I baptize with water, but one among you stands, one whom I do not know. It is he who comes after me, the, thr- the thong of his sandal, I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And then it goes into the baptism narrative that needed to be. This is a powerful statement. So you ask me where the historical is. I think we've gone over some of the historical in this. It's pretty clear. You know, John was a historical character. He lived and he testified. He had a mission. He had a testimony, had testimony about Jesus Christ. Where's the spiritual aspect of this? I think this is the part that I really want to spend a little bit of time on before we get to the practical. The spiritual is this. It says John was sent by God in verse 6. I love that. There came a man sent by God. His name was John. And John had a mission. I don't know about you guys, but there's something powerful about having a mission, right? Most of the guys in here, you know, if it, we, we don't do well when it's just when it's willy-nilly and we don't know what to do, Right? Most of us, we just sort of, we flounder a little bit if we don't have a direction or a place to go. I know, um, uh, like, in, in a few days, we're going to be painting in the room in there. And we know that when we get together, everybody in this building probably has painted uh, a room at some point in their life. If you haven't, come on Friday or Saturday, and we'll teach you how you get that first-time experience. But most of us have. We most of us basically know the, the basic structure of how to paint a room. But it's amazing that when you walk in there and you have an individual that says, I need you to do this, 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 and this, how much easier it is to be able to get things accomplished. Every one of us here that learned anything, we learned it in an order. If you learned how to do math, um, and you, you have to start with the basics. Nobody starts off with a Pythagorean theorem. 
Everybody started off with one plus one, two plus two. Everybody started off with one times one is one, two times two is four. And I had to think about that for a minute. I'm sorry, Bill. But yeah, (laughs) we all started off with this. We had laid the groundwork. We built up. We knew that there was a, a thing. But we had a mission. We had framework. We had a guidance. John had a mission. He was sent by God, and he had a mission. If you want to know further about what John happened in his birth, you can go back to the other Gospels. They talk more about his birth than John the, than John the Gospel writer did. But there is, there is obviously a mission that was involved in there. So what's the, what's the spiritual aspect that we can get from this? Wouldn't you love it in years and years from now when we step into heaven and we all gather around the, the heavenly bonfire, you know, we're baking s'mores, we're talking about the, 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 I don't want to say the good old days, but the old days, back when we had skin and bones and, and sin was there, and we were talking about the things we did. And wouldn't you like it if maybe one of the people sort of stepped out of the other and, 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 and said, there was a man named Mike. There was a woman named Terry. There was a man named Al. And he was sent by God. And she was sent by God. They weren't God. But they were sent to testify about him. Imagine how powerful that would be. We don't have to wait to get to heaven to have that. We have that now. If you're in this room, if you're sitting here, I'm here to tell you that your story begins that way. You just put your name in that place. And your mission is the same as John's, to testify about the light. But here's the thing, and we've got to remember this. It's so easy. And you know, I, we come in here and I think to myself, I stand in front of you guys an awful lot. I mean, I open the service and we pray and I give announcements. And then sometime in the, in the first, after the first few songs, I get up here and I, 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 I lead you guys as we, um, as we take up an offering. And then I come and stand up again for the kids and then I sit down. And I come stand up again and I preach what I feel like God wants you to hear. And then I go down and then I come back up here again as we close out the service. It's, it's almost like, and if somebody who didn't know what this job was and didn't understand church, it's almost like this would be like the Al Weeks show. And that's a bad show. I just want you to know that. And fortunately, I mean, you know, there's no admission prices to come in because I doubt that we would make much money for a charging admission to see the Al Week show. And it's something that every Christian, myself included, needs to remember every single day that it is not the Mike show. It is not the Terry show. It is not the Al Week show. It's the Jesus show, right? And we're not to talk about us so much as we're to talk about him through us. And that's hard. That's really hard. But that's our mission. And that's what John was. And I tell you, this, there's reasons why Jesus said that of those born of women, there is no greater man than John the Baptist. There was a reason why when Jesus had things to say about his cousin John, he said there is no one greater than this man. And this man... When he had the opportunity to bring glory upon himself, he didn't do it. 
He didn't do it. You say, where's that found at? Let's look back in John's gospel. In verse 35, chapter 1. And again, the next day, John was standing with his two disciples. When it says the next day, it's the day after he baptized Jesus, okay? That was a huge event. I tell you, there isn't a preacher alive that wouldn't give his right arm to have the kind of event to happen in their ministry than what John had with the baptism of Jesus. I mean, honestly thinking about it, Okay, John's there. He's doing his ministry. He's having a good time. He's in the water daily, baptizing. He's preaching. People are coming. He's got a congregation. And then Jesus shows up, right? And then everybody else just thinks, oh, it's just another guy. It's just another baptism. And John says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I can't baptize you. Now, John just said to the, to the Jews, I don't know who this cat is that's coming after me. But God's going to send him. Now, he knew who Jesus was. Jesus was his cousin. Jesus shows up, and the Holy Spirit says, John, he's the guy. So John says, whoa, I can't baptize you. And Jesus said, oh, yeah, you can, John. You're going to do it now, because I need this. You need this. The universe needs this. Let's do this. That's Al's paraphrase, by the way. You're not going to find a translation like that. Okay? But it's a cool translation. Wouldn't that be neat if we did the Al's translation? No, that wouldn't work. So anyway, the point is, so he takes him down into the water, and he does what the word baptized says. He took him all the way under the water and brought him all the way back up. Now, we've seen this on television. We've seen this dramatized numerous times, and it's always different, but there's always similar themes. Jesus comes up. It's usually a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, which probably isn't, isn't real, but oh, that's Hollywood for you. And he comes up out of the water, and the clouds part. Golden sunbeams come down. The voice of God goes, Ahem. is this thing on? No, he didn't say that. He says he comes out, and the Holy Spirit, the Bible says it descends like a dove. It doesn't say that it flew down, and it was a dove. It just said descended sort of easily and lazily, like a dove would is it just gently flutters down so you have the spirit of God you have Jesus the son of God you have God the father saying this is my son and I'm proud of him listen to him now I don't know about you guys I baptize a lot of people (laughs) that has never happened that has never happened but I guarantee you if it did we wouldn't have enough seats in this congregation to fill, I mean, to have for the number of people that would show up the next Sunday once word got out that we baptized Jesus in our baptistry. Bill, the offering plate, we wouldn't have, we would have to get buckets, not plates, right? We would have to have open up phone lines. I mean, it would be crazy in here. People would be calling from all over the world. Tickets would be bought. Hotels would be booked out. It would be, the, it would be the, the celebration, the talk of the world as everybody descended on this area. And I don't, know, I don't know if I would have the humility to do what John did. This is what John did. He said to his two disciples, obviously two of the important ones because they're standing right next to him. He said to his disciples, by the way, this was James and John, um, one of the authors of the gospel here, and James was the brother of, uh, of Peter. And he says, he to the two disciples, he goes, he looked at Jesus, who just happened to be walking by, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they immediately followed Jesus, which means they stopped following John. That's humility, guys. I'm just telling you. 
That's powerful. So if you ask me what the spiritual implication is to this, I'm going to tell you flat out, it's not the Al Week story. It's the Jesus Christ story. We are here not to follow me, not to follow anybody in this room, but to follow God and God alone. We seek to be holy, not because Al Weeks is holy, because he's not. We seek to be holy because God's holy. We seek to follow him because of the grace that is continually raining down upon us in a never-ending river of grace. John knew it. John put his two key disciples into the hands of Jesus, and he says, you need to follow him. And when asked later on in another area of the Gospels, and when he asked about Jesus, John was very clear. He says, here's the deal, guys. In order for Jesus to increase, I must decrease. In other words, he's saying, I'm willing to step out of the world stage and allow Jesus front and center to take all the glory because that's my goal, is to bring glory and honor to him. It's interesting to note, if you look at the end of John's life, you know, John didn't get a chance to see it all. John was the guy. He was the first human being, other than Mary, to jump up and down in excitement about the coming Messiah. When Mary showed up with the baby in her, with Jesus sort of floating around in the, in the juices, John was in Elizabeth, and John jumped in Elizabeth's belly, excited because he was in the presence of the Messiah. John was the guy. And in the end, John was killed. He was killed because of petty jealousy, ridiculousness, sin, unwillingness to repent. He was killed by a pagan individual who would not accept the truth of what John had to say. You know, the thing is, it's not about John. It's about Jesus. So it comes back to the practical side. And I think this is where we're going to close. We've seen the historical. We've talked about that. We've talked about the the spiritual. I think it's pretty clear what our duty is. The practical side is this. What do we do as we get up out of these pews and we walk out of this room? Well, I think that's pretty clear too. It's your mission. Our duty is to show the love of Christ to those out here, out there, to anyone that isn't in this room. Does that mean we shouldn't love people in here? No, that's expected that you love people in the room. It's not so expected that you love people outside the room. That's hard. I've worked secular jobs. I've worked with people that, honestly, I wouldn't cross the road to even tell them something nice, let alone save their life. But that's wrong. Because our duty is to show the love of God so mightily that anybody that sees us recognizes us for who we are, and that's children of the living God, followers of Jesus Christ, Christ, image bearers of the Lord Most High as we step into the world. And I can't say this enough, and I know that other preachers, this is a very old and tired phrase, but it's worth repeating. You and me are sometimes the only Jesus that other people are going to see. You and I are the only Bible that many people will ever read. Are we displaying the word of God to people that don't know it? We have the privilege of living in North America, probably one of the most evangelized countries on the planet. And still, we have so many people walking in darkness. We live 
in an area, and I, I tell you this, this is one of the concerns that Sandy and I had when we decided to, before we decided to come here, was we drove around this community. Do you know how many churches around the peninsula? I think there's like over 80 churches from Seward all the way to Homer. That's a lot of churches, guys. There are more churches on the peninsula than the entire state of Alaska if you add all denominations together. That's crazy for the number of people we have living here. The population is so small in comparison. It's a challenge in a community like this that's so well-churched, but yet there is neighborhood after neighborhood within a five-mile radius of this church that right now, if we were to get up, end our service, I would say early, but it's like noon right now. So if we were to end our service 15 minutes ago, and we were to get up out of this building, and we were to walk across the street, down the road, to just the first neighborhood we see, I guarantee you we could walk through that neighborhood, knock on doors, and over 80% of the people would still be home. Of course, they'd be caught flat-footed because we showed up all in our ties and our Sunday best, and we're knocking on the door trying to bring a little Jesus to them. And some of them who are Christians who know better would probably give you excuses. Oh, I should have meant to be in church, you know. But most of them, they have no shame because they don't have the Holy Spirit within them. They have no hope. I walk to these neighborhoods intentionally to pray for them, often. I see house after house filled with stuff. I see neighborhood after neighborhood filled with signs of children. I see individual after individual that have to paint a smile on as they walk past me because they don't have any hope. This is the darkest time of the year, spiritually and physically. As I mentioned last week, the one thing that drives the dark out is the light. You've seen the light. You've tasted the light. You've held the light close to you. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you carry the light of God within you. Take it to the darkness. I think there's an old song, and I don't even remember the I don't remember the word of the song, uh, the name of the song, but it talks about gathering the light and running to the darkness. That's what we're called to do. John grabbed the light, and he ran to the darkness. Practical, this morning, you are the light. Not Jesus, but you are his representation here in Kenai. Let's run to the dark and shine his light. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, don't leave here today without getting your heart right. There are people in this building that would love to open up the Word of God and show you what it means to have eternal security and to have the light of God dwelling within your soul. Please don't leave here without it. The rest of you that know him and know him well, you know what your mission is. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for what you've given us today. Lord, I know we've talked a lot about John. And there's a lot we could say more about him. And Father, we also are well aware of the fact that John's sitting up there with you. Father, we know that John had no place in heaven if it weren't for what your son did on the cross. We know that we can't work our way into your glory. We know that what your son did for us 
paved the way. Lord, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, please don't let them get there. leave here until they get their heart right. Father, the rest of us, I ask that you will light a fire in our soul. Father, I ask that you will just ignite that spirit that's within us in a more powerful and deep way. And Father, I ask that you will allow each one that's sitting in this room that knows you and loves you to have the opportunity this week to share your light, your love, your mercy, your grace with at least one other person. That we might see your kingdom here grow. That we might see the darkness be pushed back. Father, you've said in your word that the darkness cannot overcome the light. Lord, we claim that promise. Father, we ask that you give us the strength and the boldness to be your image and light bearers to this community. And Father, we ask that you will allow us to serve you with humility, patience, and love. Father, we ask this now because of what your son did on the cross. And it is in the name of your precious, our precious Savior, our amazing, beautiful, wonderful Savior, your glorious Son, Jesus Christ, that we now pray. Amen. The altar is open, my friends. If you'll stand for the hymn of invitation.